0: You're listening to Solidarity Radio, a podcast by the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. I'm Evan King. This episode, featuring two members of our Cuba team, was recorded on the ground in the wake of the protests on July 11th and 12th that happened across the island. This is a context, specifically of U.S. interventionism, that the U.S. grassroots movements need to know about and denounce, the blockade whose express intent is to cause hardship and incite violence, and whose impacts hit hardest along race, class, and gender, and has been illegally imposed, with rejection from most of the world for the last six decades. Then, the Trump administration tightened it, adding 243 more sanctions. These compounded the challenges caused by COVID-19 pandemic and the sudden evaporation of tourism dollars in the Caribbean. The economic hardships has resulted in scarcity in areas from food, transportation, electricity, and vital medicines. People spend hours in long lines and live with uncertainty and in growing inequality despite expansive public programs, pay time off for COVID, salary raises, and subsidies for food through the Libreta neighborhood system. Daily life has been very hard for most Cubans. The frustrations boiled over into the largest demonstrations on the island in over 25 years. The additional sanctions during the Trump administration included a ban on remnants, major restrictions on where US citizens can stay and do business in Cuba, bans on the purchases of cigars and rum by US citizens. These are attacks on Cuba's economy and are felt most by families, women, the poor, and the African diaspora. Not only are these sanctions immoral and illegal, they have also come during a period in which the Cuban public health system has saved lives by all accounts and measures. Cuban medical brigades have served in more than 40 countries, and the not-for-profit vaccine development benefits other countries in the global south. It is a time that the U.S. should emulate this commitment to free, prevention-focused, and community-rooted public health systems, not blockade, sanction, and demonize them in the media. Our Havana-based team takes us into the factors that lead to the protest as well as the heavy hand that the US intervention and imperialism has played as well as the international media response. This episode serves as a testimony. Although the November 15th protests didn't really materialize, links between some of the organizers and ultra right-wing factions in the United States have been made, and the US continues to spend tens of millions on regime change programs. It is an important time to call for the end of sanctions as a major step to address hardship and respect the cuban people's sovereignty just a note one of the speaker's audio is a bit muffled at times but we still felt it was important for the audience to hear this on the ground report as a first-hand source when these are few and far between during our podcast episode we stated that the revolution occurred in 1953 that was the attack on the moncada The revolution triumphed in 1959. Here is our conversation with Pambana Guru Bassett and Justin Jimenez. Pambana, Justin, thanks so much for for joining us. I wonder if you guys can just briefly introduce yourselves to our audience. Where are you guys calling from? What do you guys do?
1: Hey, greetings to everyone listening. My name is Pambana Bassett. I use the pronouns she and her and I'm half of the Cuba team with Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective based here in Havana, in the ancestral territories of the Taino, the Bay, and the Arawak peoples.
2: Hey y'all, uh, I'm Justin Jimenez. I'm the other half of the Cuba team here on the ground in La Habana. Um, as Pambana mentioned, um, who the ancestral lands of R, Um, And yeah, I'm, I'm here with the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective um, as well. i so happy to be here today. Now use he and pronouns.
0: Awesome. Well, let's get right into, of course, uh, Cuba's been in the news recently, in the international news. Um, And of course, as the corporate news cycle and the corporate media tends to never really ground its reporting in any kind of historical context. So maybe it's a good place to start, um, is to kind of explain a little bit of US-Cuba relations um, that laid the foreground for the historic 1953 revolution, this history is important to understanding why the revolution was necessary. So maybe you guys can explain a little bit about that background history of pre-revolutionary Cuba.
1: Yeah, so pre-revolutionary Cuba was a lot of, of Cuba's history. Um, yes. Um, to begin with, uh, as we, we mentioned on the top, uh, these were ancestral territories of the Bay and uh, the Siboney peoples. And um, those are folks who fought against Spanish colonialism tooth and nail. Uh, Here in Cuba, in Baracoa, there is a statue to Hatue, um, who is a ancestor, an indigenous ancestor who fought against the Spanish um, and is famously cited for saying, you know, because the Spanish we're here in Cuba uh, because of their worship of gold and to fight and to kill and enslave that they deserve to be thrown into the sea. Um, this is important to remember because we've been hearing a lot about Matanzas um, in the news uh, because of the spike in COVID cases uh, in particular there. And Matanzas is a place with really great and rich history when it comes to indigenous resistance and black liberation In fact, Matanzas is named Matanzas or massacre um, for the indigenous people having fought back against um, the Spanish colonizers and killing many of them. Uh, So Cuba has a really rich history when it comes to indigenous resistance, has a really rich history when it comes to black or African resistance. Um, Here, you'll often hear folks talk about Carlota, uh, the re- who led a slave rebellion in the mid 1800s. Uh, she's also important uh, because she, uh, the Carlota, is the name of the operation that Cuba waged in Angola as part of the struggle against colonialism there, and particularly that dealt uh, the most decisive blow against apartheid and white colonial rule. Uh, not only in South Africa, but with all of the ways that that settler colony operated with U.S. and European support. Um, so these are, you know, two historic references to the Kev- the Cuban Revolution of 1959 um, and to the July 26th movement, uh, all of which were part of this long history of resisting uh, imperialism.
2: I, I think in terms of You know, I I think sometimes, you know, especially what we hear from right-wing Cubans, from Cubans in Miami, I think in a lot of the rhetoric that the State Department uses, um, you know, the U.S. government uses is sort of talking about, you know, the sparkling land that was Havana before the revolution, how the revolution sort of destroyed it and buried it into the ground. Um, But I, I think it's so important to go deeper and to think about, you know, what actually was the structure of that in terms of, you know, how much ownership the U.S. had. All the industry in the country. When we talk about Domino Sugar, um, you know, and the Florida, in the Florida uh, Crystal Sugar Company, something like that. Um, but you know, but basically having like full domination, um, you know, of the sugar industry, um, you know, in a way where there were very little protections, uh, you know, for labor rights and a lot of labor exploitation, um, not just Cubans but of Jamaicans and Haitians that were coming as seasonal workers to work on the island. Um, you can talk about you know, all of the corruption that there was in terms of how much, um, you know, the organized crime syndicates in the U.S. uh, had a hand in, you know, the hotel uh, industry to use as a back channel for drug and arms flow in and out of Cuba and into the rest of Latin America. Um, So I I, I think those are important things to add as a context as well. Um, You know, and, and I think one thing that it's done both as a way to mislead what the you know movements the revolution's aims were not also to mislead in terms of what the conditions were before that is there's really only a focus on Havana when you know that leaves out a lot of what the conditions were um, in rural areas in the island you know conditions for you know for agricultural workers conditions for for peasants um you know conditions for campesinos uh, it, you know every really leaves that out and in terms of what those conditions were there were high rates of illiteracy, there were high rates of transmission of preventable diseases, um, you know, things as simple as, you know, things that are simple to fix, you know, with the vaccine uh, or prevention, such as polio or malaria. Um, so, you know, when the revolution happened and the big campaigns were led in terms of literacy campaigns, in terms of health campaigns, these were some of the first things that, you know, the folks working down there encountered in terms of, you know, the conditions that people were dealing with and how easily to change they were. Um, you know, only if structure was created to uh, actually care
0: for them. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, And I wanted to touch a little bit about something that Pambana mentioned in her answer is Cuba's rich history of black liberation struggles, not just in Latin America, but also in the African continent. And so now we see this weaponization of blackness that I've seen on social media, you know, kind of painting Cuba as this repressive state against uh, uh, its black population. So I wonder how you guys would respond to those claims.
1: Yeah, um, you're absolutely right uh, to recognize that there's been um, a real disfiguring of what is blackness. Um, You know, blackness is a radical tradition. It's a politics. It's an understanding of how the world is organized and how we want it to be organized. And it's deeply anti-colonial and deeply anti-capitalist. And because of those things, uh, black analysis and black solidarity really needs to understand the ways in which white supremacy is operating as a counter-revolutionary force here in Cuba and also in the U.S. and very particularly in the U.S. through its imperialism. So all of those ancestors, the indigenous, uh, the black uh, are continuing to influence people here in Cuba today and specifically in 1959, when across the island, the people decided to rise up and to totally transform what was, as Justin described, plantations, casinos, super exploitation, um, the export of raw materials, and conditions that were like enslavement and conditions that really um, challenged people's self-determination. Cuba supposedly was independent, but it was truly, you know, since the early 1900s with the Platt Amendment in particular, um, it was... uh, a pawn or a piece of the U.S. empire and um, the Cuban sugar oligarchy, who are, you know, their children today are the ones who describe Cuba as this pearly, shiny gem before the revolution. And they're mad because of the total, you know, redistribution of wealth that the Cuban revolution has meant in terms of health outcomes, in terms of access to subsidized transportation, telecommunications, in terms of international solidarity with other liberation struggles. So people are you know, rightly recognizing that not only is the majority of Cuba of African descent, but also that on Sunday, those protests had a lot of folks who were of African descent. And unfortunately, what we've seen in liberal media is the attempt to have this narrative like fit what they're seeing based on their context instead of really understanding that the blockade is intentionally racist. You know, the blockade for these 60 years has intentionally made life difficult for black people uh, because they have reclaimed so many resources. So it makes sense that people are frustrated with the hardships that they face in their lives. But certainly white supremacy from the north is the biggest threat. And um, you know, the US black organizations and movement, you know, we need to sharpen our clarity on that.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I think to the modest point, I don't think that's, you know, accidental that we're seeing a lot of pushback, sort of weaponized, you know, as, as Gabrielle, you know, sort of posited her question. Um, you know that weapon has the same language that's used. Uh, you know, uh, you know, by progressive folks, by, by folks on methods organizing circles, by folks organizing for racial justice. Um, you know, I think, you know, across Latin America, but in the case of Kiva, there are so many resources that are thrown at this on a yearly basis. You know, specifically, you know, outside of covert methods, specifically at, at subversive methods. Um, you know, of subverting the Cuban Revolution and its achievements. Subverting people, organizing on the ground, um, you know, that I, I think over time they learned that the usual methods aren't going to work. So I, I think there are these methods of, of, you know, asking questions like how can you support, you know, Cuba and the Cuban revolution if you're against police brutality in the U.S. or if you're against racial justice in the U.S. Um, or if you're against, you know, or if you're against fascism, which is a ludicrous, you know, thing to say. Um, but I, I think that does happen, and I think what it does is, you know, as bottom said, if you don't already have sharp international analysis, you know, which is, is common in, in organizing circles that can be very U.S.-centric, and you know, sort of export what they think, you know, what the conditions are in their countries and think that it's the same, you know, it, it's sort of the same conditions in other countries, uh, you know, which really erases a lot of the hegemony that you, like, the U.S. has had on a global scale. I think it's really easy to get swayed and manipulated by those messengers that are specifically designed to do that, to sort of use people's values against them. Um, you know, in a, in a way that's confusing and uh, you know, and, and really stops any forward motion, any forward organizing, any forward solidarity, um, you know, in hopes that you know we'll make more right for the US to have its way, uh, you know, with this, this harmful policy that have been going
0: on for centuries. Yeah, and I think it's so crazy to think that the United States somehow would have the answer to those plights, um, given its history, <laughs> um, I mean, just internally, but also in the Caribbean, you know, in its relationship to Cuba, obviously, but its relationship to, to Haiti and the, Haiti, the Haitian Revolution uh, has always been a counter-revolutionary force in in Latin America and the rest of the world. I wanted to just turn back here on the embargo or the blockade, rather, um, that Pambana mentioned as it being uh, one of the things that is goes under discussed in corporate media. I mean, we saw, we saw Joe Biden uh, make a statement, not even mentioned that the United States has been blockading Cuba for so long. So can you talk a little bit about what the, what is the goal of the blockade? I mean, why is the United States blockading Cuba? And what, it's, what is it, its impact uh, like on the island and how does it disproportionately affect certain groups of people? Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I'm happy I'm, I'm to get that started. I mean, I think, in you know, with the recent wave of how the U.S. is sort of trying to capitalize on this moment in the protests, um, I think there's been people's solidarity circles, there's sort of been a lot of sharing. Uh, you know, this famous, this famous memo, uh, the Lester D. Mallory memo, um, you know, which is sort of what, you know, the blueprint for the blockade. And then there's this paragraph in it specifically says, you know, that any method should be taken, you know, as adroit, um, you know, sort of inconspicuous as possible to, you know, lead to, uh, uh, you know, paraphrasing here, but it, you know, it says like economic disaster, starvation, desperation, you know, which would lead to overthrow the government, which, you know, if you have done your research into the protests and what people were voicing, there were frustrations around, you know, shortages when it comes to energy, when it comes to the food situation, when it comes to the COVID-19 situation, um, so I, I think these are things that very much have historical precedents, um, you know, and, and that was the goal. I think they, you know, they were well aware that this was a popular revolution. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a top-down revolution. It was very much from the ground up, in terms of having people organizing at every level, um, not just, you know, throughout the, you know, the, you know, the, the battle for the revolution, but also, you know, in, in, in the six decades since the revolution. and and hopefully, you know, prevent people, um, you know, turning against against their own revolutionary process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The blockade uh, is a really complex system of laws and policies that's aimed particularly at making life difficult for the Cuban people and it targets specifically marginalized and oppressed folks. Um, So in very specific ways, Black people... Um, the center with whom we work, the Centro Memorial, Martin Luther King, has recently been doing a lot of work on the gendered impacts of the blockade. Um, It impacts queer folks, it impacts campesines. It's, you know, its intention and its effect is to make life really difficult uh, for the majority of people. And it's pretty incredible that even despite this, and I think it was last year estimated at, you know, the, the blockade cost the Cuban government something like $9 billion. Um, even so, the Cuban people have remained committed to the right to education, to health care, to ending landlordism, to sports and culture as a right, um, to telecommunications, to hosting students from all over the world to study, to participating in, in building public programs. To winning awards in you know arts and culture and athletics, you know, just a tremendous dedication to human life, despite the incredible cost of the blockade. And in particular, you know, we're now many months into the current administration of Biden and as a solidarity solidarity collective and solidarity movement, really angered at the ways in which this racist and colonial set of laws has been kept in place, and also in particular with Trump's 243 additional sanctions, I believe over 100 of them during the pandemic, you know, have been kept in place to target key industries, and also to target families in particular by banning remittances, Uh, by making travel to different provinces impossible through direct flights, you know, doing a whole host of things that make life really, really tough for people. And it's also an attempt, you know, you mentioned Haiti. In 1804, Haiti was also blockaded uh, by the US and Europe, because not only what Haiti was doing to contribute Politically, ideologically, financially, to liberation struggles, Simon Bolivar, Greek independence, but also because of the symbolic importance of Haiti. The same can be said of Cuba. I mean, these 63 years, Cuba has remained steadfast, you know, a beacon of light that we can pursue an alternative path that is not colonial and capitalist and that will take time to deepen and expand, um, that requires protagonism of the people, um, but that it's possible. And the US is constantly through the blockade, through the military occupation of Guantanamo, through the tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on supposed pro-democracy campaigns here in Cuba, which are actually just interventionist policies, You know, despite all of that, Cuba has remained strong. And so that's why we continue to defend its right to exist and to collaborate and cooperate with other peoples, other nations, uh, which the blockade attempts to stop and effectively does. You know, there are lists of examples of other people and nations being punished because of their collaboration with Cuba.
0: I think that's a great overview also to help people understand why the United States is so intent on overthrowing the government of of Cuba and not just the government, but subverting the entire revolutionary process as a beacon of an alternative um, to, you know, that centers life as opposed to, to profit. And I wanted maybe to ask a little bit about that. I've heard you talk about your experience working in predominantly black communities in the United States and how stark uh, the contrast can be uh, between the approach the government has taken in places like New Orleans uh, after Katrina and, and the abandonment of those communities versus what how the Cuban government has responded to, uh, you know, not just, you know, climate events but also this pandemic, uh, how has that been just in your own experience uh, as a black person in Cuba?
1: My goodness, the difference is so stark. I, it's amazing. Um, It's hard to say because we all know that the global south is super exploited and really cash poor and continually under the heel of the US, of Europe. Um, But life in many ways is better for Black people in Cuba. And that's evident through health outcomes, social indicators, level of participation um, that isn't thwarted. You know, in the U.S., folks are struggling for like voter participation laws right now. You know, it's just totally backward and racist. And of course, you know, founded as a settler colony. I mean, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina, those black folks were not abandoned. They they experienced genocide. You know, a total willingness to let people die. And that is what we've witnessed throughout this COVID pandemic in the US. You know, how many nurses have died, how many people have died, 600,000 plus, and that black, brown, and indigenous peoples are dying at two or three times the rate of white folks that we're dying younger. You know, it's just the health. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The lies that we heard in corporate media, the lies we heard from the highest levels of power in government. You know, here in Cuba, it's just incredible to see the commitment to empowering people with information. So that's every day seeing the reports neighborhood by neighborhood, province by province, sharing what kinds of cases they are describing the people who have passed away, how old they are, where they lived, what symptoms they exhibited, you know, giving people information that also gives, you know, that there's uh, that there is care for the people, you know, and that people can practice discipline uh, to ensure that everybody is well. You know, in the US right now there's this incredible vaccine rollout, supposedly, but pharmaceutical interventions are great but in the US they are making billionaires more billionaire and they're not the only way they're not the answer you know the answer is prevention the answer is care and here in Cuba you have consultorios you have clinicos Clínicas, you have hospitals, you have dentists, you have all kinds of public health services for free, universal. I mean, through chemotherapy, I mean, just incredible access that's rooted in the community and that's de- dedicated to really the whole person. You hear folks at ELAM students talking about the bio social that you know health is about the whole human being this is a totally different model than what we've seen in the US in which the life expectancy of our people has dropped tremendously because of just capitalism neoliberalism equaling death so it is a stark difference it's hard to say because people are cash poor but when it comes to you know, people's access to things that you need to be a full person, those things are ensured through their own process, through their budgets, through their constitution in which the Cuban people participated in writing it. The U.S. Constitution was written by slave owners. Like who says that slave owners in the 1700s know how to run a government that will be good for the majority? That's just, you know, the actual foundations of it are are sick and seeing on a day to day walking around my neighborhood and seeing public phones, public Wi-Fi park, the consultorios, seeing an elder people's home, seeing parks, seeing transportation that you have to wait forever for because of the attack on Venezuelan oil, but that comes and is inexpensive for regular people. You know, there's just this incredible structural commitment to people's well-being that doesn't exist in a place where... You know, they're landlords and, you know, total, total willingness to exploit and let people die because they're Black, because we're Indigenous, because we're, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's definitely, I say this all the time, uh, a revolutionary process and w- that would not have been possible without the people. So it's, as Justin said, a popular process that's been maintained and defended because people are committed to these rights being ones that should be shared by the majority of people and not just a few rich.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, hearing you say that is incredible uh, for me as well, given that I'm based here in Colombia, and it's such a contrast to what you're what you're talking about and the difference between the way the United States treats Colombia versus Cuba is just the prime example of the hypocrisy in all of this. I mean, almost at the same time as the SOS Cuba protest uh, began and it started trending, the Paro Nacional here, SOS Colombia, which began before that, uh, was was still happening, still trending. And on the daily, I mean, the level of brutality, the level of violence that the state unleashes against its people is insane. And none of those guarantees are met. I mean, not even the most basic things. Um, And yet it's never placed on, uh, you know, on like this is capitalism's fault, right? Or this is US colonialism's fault. but it very much is. I mean, uh, this is a country in Colombia that has over 8 million people that are forcibly displaced, uh, living in the slums of Bogota, Medellin, Cali, uh, who, you know, on April 28th rose up in a historic uh, rebellion that I think is a sign of hope uh, for me. Although, obviously, the horrors are not lost on me, um, but yet seeing people empowered. Who have been completely uh, excluded from even the most basic forms of, of dignity uh, that are just taken for granted in Cuba uh, as something that's like you know uh, not impressive when it's like look at the rest of the global south you know look at the U.S.'s protectorates look at uh, Puerto Rico look at Q- uh, look at Colombia you know these are the examples that uh, the U.S. wants to promote as democracies, uh, as like uh, the lands of the free. So for me, uh, just hearing you talk about it um, makes me feel <laughs> like, uh, you know, I have a different appreciation for those things, given my experience in Colombia and just like the fight that people are, are engaging in here just for the most basic stuff. Um, and a lot of folks do look to Cuba here as a source of, uh, as an an example of of a dignified people uh, rising up and defending it for a prolonged amount of time, in that protecting the gains of the revolution and not letting, you know, U.S. imperialist interest uh, meddle with uh, their vision. Of what they want for their themselves.
1: Sorry, Justin. Just very quickly. I mean, also when it comes to Cuba and Colombia, I mean, both really dignified people. Colombia, you know, this puppet regime, narco regime, backed and you know how much money the U.S. has spent, military bases, bipartisan. I mean, here in Cuba, it's uh, it's incredible that. In terms of the, you know, not having guns in people's homes, um, not having that level of state violence, um, you know, I mean, people think that it's not fair to make those kinds of equivalencies, but it means something. It's a testament to the will of the people when there aren't massacres, when there isn't, you know, intense drug trafficking through their their island You know, and these are things that Cuban people have achieved that they are exporting, you know, doctors across the world, (laughs) that they're exporting uh, vaccines that they've developed here, um, you know, and not US, you know, trained, School of the Americas trained mercenaries.
0: Yeah, let me. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about like the, the port city of Buenaventura here in Colombia, uh, which is like over 80% black. Um, And that's a good sample of how the Colombian government treats its black population, which is to say like half of the population there doesn't have access to to drinking water. Um, The average life expectancy is like 10 years less than the rest of the country. Um, And they're terrorized by these paramilitary uh, units that go around uh, forcibly recruiting young young people, um, shooting into homes, charging people uh, vacunas or extorting them. Um, the levels of poverty are incredible. I mean, it's like 70% unemployment. You know, but that's never the face that is shown uh, when we talk about Colombia and we talk about uh, is this a model, you know, for... It's uh, you know the rest of, of the world if this, if this is what they want to be but this is obviously what the United States is is pushing and exporting abroad you know if if they were to get their way with with Cuba then Havana would probably look like uh, Buenaventura um, you know I mean I can't imagine what what Cuba would be if the U S can get its hands uh, on on power in the island and can convince its people to turn against it themselves. Um, that won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we kind of talked about it, um, but just how? I mean, I kind of wanted to get a little bit of a, a geopolitics here to not necessarily look at Cuba in isolation. That this is part of a kind of broader geostrategy from the United States to cement its hegemony in in the Western hemisphere. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about how this fits into this, the way the U.S. has been trying to control the region for so long.
2: I I mean, I I think it's hard. I think my biggest frustration recently has been with how short of a memory folks in the U.S. have. I mean, you know we we know the staggering number of you know of, of interventions that the u.s has performed throughout the you know throughout latin america um you know even just in the last century um and i mean yeah i, I, think, I think that has been my biggest frustration i think i really i think what that i love doing is um you know in terms of you know the two islands that you know make a part of our family history the dominican republic in cuba um I, I i think you know the, the parallels are really striking i think um, you know, on the one hand, you have the Dominican Republic that went through two rounds of, uh, you know, U.S. imposed dictators um, in Rafael del Río, in balaguer, um, you know, which were incredibly violent. Um, you know, and, and, and now, you know, you have, you know, in Santo Domingo, what I imagine the U.S. would have hope for Havana, you know, which is, you know, there's a lot of U.S. controlled um, tourism you know, which they control most of the assets of, they get most of the funds of. Um, and, you know, you you have sort of these, these these problems of capitalism that you mentioned. You know, you have, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a violent drug flow that, you know, leads to increasing gun violence. Um, and, you know, and, and I, and I think, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what the U.S. promotes and then what countries take on, um, you know, in terms of its colonial behavior, I think that's very evident in its relationship to Haiti. Um, you know, ten years ago, you had the DR try to uh, you know try to try to deport a um, hundred thousand um, you know Haitian Dominican folks that have lived in the in the DR for generations. So I, I, I think that's always one thing that I that really helps me to look at as a parallel. Um, you know, and, and then and then you come back to Cuba and, and you know the, the situation is is very different in terms of you know you don't have that gun violence. You have a culture that is very proud. Um, you know, uh, of its Black heritage, of its of its African-Cuban heritage. Um, you know, you like you mentioned, you, you don't have an island that's being used as, you know, a, as a place to import and export drugs through, um, you know, to the rest of Latin America. Um, so I think that's, that's something that always helps me um, or, or that I love to do as, as an exercise in, you know, in thinking through conditions and thinking through the, the deep, deep, uh, you know, the, the deep, deep impacts of U.S. intervention. Um, and, and, yeah, in and, and U.S. involvement in a country's history. Um, and I, I think that's something that we really struggle in seeing as, as you know, as folks in the U.S. in general, as organized in the U.S. Um, yeah, and you know, and I, I don't think, I, I think you're totally right, Evan, that, you know, this has to form part of, you know, a, a, a the U.S.'s new approach to Latin America, which, you know, isn't new at all. It's just, you know, a different way to rehash old ideas. Um, you know, I think I think we've definitely seen it recently in Haiti. I think in the case of Cuba, I don't think it's a surprise that it comes as you know, Biden was be doing a review of Cuba policy, um, and then it came right at the end of that. And then you know, a lot of the issues that we know come out of the blockade, that come out of those covert and, and subversive methods, are then being used to justify you know some of the ways he might decide to maintain the blockade at the same level of intensity or intensify it even more. You know, for example, we have them saying something, you know, as, as, as harmful as, um, you know, as we, we can't allow remittances because we're worried that, you know, most of the money would go to the government. But we know that's not true. You know, we know all across Latin America, people you know it's, it's people really need, um, you know, that, that support from family abroad. People really need those remittances. Um, you know, and, and they're mostly used for, you know, they're mostly used for people's day-to-day needs. They're used to, uh, you know, to get, to get additional food. Um, you know, that money goes into, into, into folks' businesses or projects. Uh, that money goes to make repairs on people's homes. Um, so I, I think we're really, you know, seeing the issues that are, you know, come out of the blockade here being used to justify more harmful policy. And that's not new. That has historical precedent. Um, you know, I don't think we have to go that far back. I think, you know, all sorts of, uh, really ridiculous things get used to justify harmful policy in Cuba. I think, you know, we saw it with the creation of, the whole scandal around Havana Syndrome, um, you know, which you know so far is all the reports have been inconclusive, but that was used as justification to pull out the embassy from Cuba, um, you know, which in in the in, you know while that in the U.S. you know we might take it to be a joke, we might not understand the full impact, you know, that leads to you know Cubans having to take really dangerous, uh, you know, routes to, you know, to to be able to to emigrate because so few visas are being completed. Um, you know, whether that's them, you know, going through, you know, through through the Gulf or that's them, you know, going through Central America, um, you know, and then being, you know, being stuck at the the border between U.S. and Mexico. Um, So I I, I think it's really important to provide that precedent too.
1: Yeah. Also that, you know, this notion that money going to the government is a bad thing. It's like, yeah, it's bad in the U.S., right? You know, I mean, I'm, and for people paying taxes and rich need to pay taxes. Um, But what we saw was, you know, publicly funded research to make the COVID vaccines, you know, enriching Pfizer and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just the ways that that public resources are used for private profiteering entity, you know, motives. Whereas here in Cuba, it's like money to the government means money to education, to healthcare. (laughs) You know, it means money to, uh, you know, fixing up infrastructure. It means money to all, you know, things that are are for the most part, you know, and I'm not uh, saying that there is no corruption or there is no mismanagement. You know, I personally think, you know, that these are really small and especially small in comparison to the blockade, which is just horrific. And it's a huge magnitude. Um, But this notion that as people, we can't take state power is very strange. And it's also very intentional that U.S. movements are being discouraged um, from understanding the right of the global South to also pursue taking state power. So your question was about what is this iteration of U.S. empire? And it is always targeted at the solutions that emerge from the grassroots, from the black and indigenous, from autonomous struggles, from the Oya común, from the puntos de resistencia, um, from you know the zapatistas reclaiming their lands and building clinics where there were none. You know the grassroots come up with these solutions and some of them you know set on a path for taking state power. Um, And the hope is with very deep collective decision-making processes and very wide levels of participation of women, of indigenous, of black folks, of workers, the majorities, we've seen the U.S. particularly target people who have done that, popular processes that have done that. So we mentioned, I mentioned Venezuela and the attack on Venezuela is attack on all of us. You know, Venezuela has played such a key role in providing a different pole of power in the Americas. Uh, incredible internationalism and solidarity. They're inspired by the Haitian Revolution. They're inspired by the Cuban Revolution. And their commitment to also ensuring that other people are well and that you know that their path is is protected. The U.S. has responded with economic warfare. You know, the sanctions regime. regime The hybrid unconventional warfare, just very specific targeting that will cause chronic shortages of really basic goods that will make, you know, um, uh, cause hyperinflation um, that will make it difficult for public hospitals to get the medicines to give care for free to people. Um, It causes an impossibility of banking in the international scheme that's dominated by the US. It punishes other nations and people of working with these countries. It is misinformation, you know, this notion that media is, is neutral or, or fair is untrue. You know, we all know that Facebook sold 80 million people's information for the election that got Trump in power. We all know about Cambridge Analytica. We know that corporations are dominating in those spheres, spheres and they're telling lies, and really specifically for a racist agenda that is against Venezuela, that is against Bolivia, that justifies a coup against a people declaring their right to a participatory democracy, um, you know, that is indigenous and, and deeply campesino and working class. Um, we see this in Nicaragua, where the U.S. is involved in all kind of meddling and similar pro-democracy programs that we see here in Cuba, you know, heavy funding through USAID, um, tar- you know, creation of NGOs and a so-called independent uh, progressive force that is actually against the poor people in their country that tries to thwart food sovereignty and land reform, that attacks the Cuban and Venezuelan embassies, the same happened actually in the coup in Honduras. I remember folks uh, in Copin saying that they rushed to the Cuban and Venezuelan embassies to protect them in 2009, because it was so clear that these golpistas and these right-wingers and Marco Rubio and the mayor of Miami calling for intervention, that they're, they're white supremacists and they really hate poor people and they can't get behind the fact that we are organizing to, to take back our right to determine our destiny. And that's why the U.S. has 800 plus military bases, lily pads, that's why it's increasing its presence through AFRICOM across the continent. You know, it's a warfare that's economic, that's military, that's political, that's mediatic. And it won't win, but it requires us to have a very deep understanding of the forces and a deep commitment to internationalism and tying our our struggles for the majorities to each other.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I mean, it's also important to know Justin mentioned the timing of these protests and it seems to me that Cuba was really gaining ground in terms of its relationship to other countries because of its preparedness for COVID and its willingness to engage in a foreign policy of, based in solidarity and not in you know everyone for themselves, I'm gonna save myself and shut down, but instead was sending doctors to all sorts of corners of, of the world um, while the United States was sending bombs You know, in Afghanistan, Yemen, and you know, starving people in Venezuela, as you mentioned, it seems that the US felt that it was losing its PR warfare against a Cuban revolutionary process that was bearing fruit, right? That was 60 years in the making or over 60 years in the making. And it was exactly a pandemic of this scale in which it could really come to the forefront. And it did. In a very courageous and world like internationally renowned way. And then suddenly, bam, you know, you see this backlash, you see this, uh, you know, Cold War rhetoric returning um, and co optation of, of celebrity, you know, pu- getting pulled into this conversation without having any context or any expertise on what exactly is going on. So I wonder if the time, to me, the timing feels suspicious one for the media blitz against Cuba, but also in the tightening of the sanction. I mean, it's particularly cruel that in the middle of a pandemic, the United States starts to tighten its economic screws on the island and really try to make it so that no one can escape um, the impacts of the economic blockade, uh, as well as its sanctions on Venezuela that, as you mentioned before, affect the fuel scarcity in Cuba. I mean, Cuba doesn't have oil, right? It imports all of its oil. It's an island that imports most things uh, and therefore is particularly vulnerable to these kind of attacks. And so that the United States waits, you know, for this particular moment to really go down. And as we've seen, like, they try to pin this on Trump, you know, Joe Biden has been just as bad and ruthless against the Cuban people. So I wonder if the timing for you feels suspicious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The timing is, I mean, the the blockade is an attempt to make things really difficult for people. It's an attempt to re-enslave the Cuban people to, you know, drag us all back into colonialism. And, I agree. You know, this has been a time when Cuba has been such a shining light, you know, of how to respond to a pandemic with life at center without prioritizing the like quick opening up for businesses, forcing people back to work. I mean, here, state salaries were increased, you know, and the majority of people work in state industries, the government increased the number of self-employment categories from like 250 to over a thousand, know, maybe even more than that. Um, there have been all of these attempts to both rectify the challenges when it comes to health as well as the economy, Dis, despite you know the, the the not knowing that came with this pandemic, um, the not knowing how bad it would be, the not knowing, how it worked. You know, Cuba was so quick to mobilize, much like it does when there are disasters. I mean, we were here for Tropical Storm Elsa. I mean, they had plans to evacuate cattle. You know, people, ensure that people were in homes, you know, taking care of the agriculture. It's just like this incredible rapid response to protect life and to protect people's you know, material conditions in the face of hardship. And the whole world has witnessed it. I mean, I think in particular, this notion that that exists in the U.S. that Cuba is isolated is the biggest lie. You know, Cuba is not isolated. The U.S. attempts to isolate and try, attempts to freeze out but here you get on the buses, there's students from Palestine, Nicaragua, Colombia, from the Congo, from Zimbabwe, from Angola, from Mozambique, you know, from all over the world who are studying here. They have an immigration policy that's like super pro-black, like super pro-black. Where in the US we have this really horrific white supremacist immigration policy, and always have since the settler colony was established. And um you know, Cuba also is sending people across the world. It is not a small thing that Cuba participated in our anti-colonial struggles and people died fighting for our liberation in, on the African continent. Cuba has, you know, participated in Venezuela building an entire public health system. I mean in Venezuela you go to Caracas and you're like wow this is what's possible in socialism when the majority is black and brown and when oil wealth exists because you see all these huge towering public housing projects Venezuela is the number one builder of public housing in the world I don't it's like I think it's over 5 million units at this point because they have oil wealth you know they've been incredibly attacked but you just see how much wealth was being siphoned off the same is true for for Cuba. We just saw how. Anyway, so just to say, Cuba has just played this tremendous role. You had 184 countries voting at the UN. That's not new. It's been about that for 29 years in a row. But you also have people receiving Cubans. Um, you know, part of the Henry Reeve Brigade and missions in Belize. Most of the Belizean doctors were trained in Cuba. I might, you know, at least all the ones that I met when I lived there. In Jamaica, there's a Cuban in all 14 parishes, some of them like in real rural areas where there was, you know, none. When there was the Ebola pandemic, Cubans responded. The Henry Reed Brigade was created to respond to New Orleans, a Black working class city where everything has been privatized since not only did thousands of people die but they also have privatized all the public schools they're all charter you know what puerto rico is facing just an incredible like attempt to recolonize territories that are ours and so this timing is is obviously to do that to undermine the achievements to make us think that cuba has not been good at its covid response Yes, there is a spike in cases. We're well aware because we get notifications all the time. We listen to the radio and get a two hour long report from Dr. Duran, the head of the Ministry of Health, who goes through, you know, all the categories where there have been more cases. You know, we, we, we know we are aware. Um, and Cuba has been mobilizing to respond. So all to say, yes, the timing is to try to undermine Cuba's COVID response and also Cuba's response to ensure that the poor who live here, don't perish and that we have seen in not a single neoliberal country. And also I think it's particularly time to target us as black folks because it's, you know, along with this, you know, what what you and Gabrielle described as the weaponization of blackness and like this kind of uh, disfiguring of blackness as though it's not anti-empire, as though it's not radical as a tradition. It's like particularly, at this moment, when in the U.S. there's been such an, an uncovering by the all the, I think it was 15 million people took to the streets last summer, you know, to say racial injustice is alive and well in the U.S. It's a white supremacist state. It's a police state. It's an occupying, you know, force. Um, so it's it's also timed to try to really to, to really target black movement in the U.S., which to be perfectly honest, is politically underdeveloped. There is not an understanding, a shared understanding of the U.S.'s role in terrorizing, starving, warring, occupying, cooing people across the world, particularly for their commitment to pursuing pursuing, socialist agendas, pursuing popular agendas. So it seems to me like this particular mediatic campaign of the SOS Cuba that was trending in Miami, trending in North Virginia, that had all kinds of bots, that had the US major newspapers ready to print pictures, including some pictures of 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 marches that were like, we are with the revolution. They took pictures of sisters. And, you know, one of them was in the street with her flag saying, I will not put up with this violence here in Cuba because we defend our revolutionary process. And the UN used it to say that she was against the revolution. She's been on TV and radio saying, that ain't me. For that reason, like I was there to defend my process, you know, and um, there's just been this like real targeted attempt. Of course, after decades of the U.S. particularly targeting young people, particularly targeting hip hop and rappers, particularly targeting particular sectors, um, which, you know, the government has repeatedly said the protagonism of the youth is, is key. Um, The the UJC is key. The student unions are key. You know, we need youth to be part of this struggle. And um, unfortunately, in the U.S., there's just not this this understanding of how the lengths, as Justin said, the lengths that, that the U.S. is willing to go to try to undermine the achievements and to get black people on the wrong side of history, Hopefully we'll get, we'll get it together and be principled, unequivocal in defending the Cuban revolutionary process as one that is Black internationalist in its praxis, in its theory, and also that is carried out by a majority Black population, although people have different ways of identifying themselves. And also one that is ours as black people, because our people did this, you know, like wherever we are on the planet, we need to defend this revolutionary process that for 63 years has dared to defy the white empire.
0: Yeah. And I think with your answers, it's clear that these attacks, uh, whether they be mediatic, whether they be economic or militaristic in nature, are not just an attack on Cuba, an attack on everyone, right? Like starving everyone else from what could be. Uh, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina. I remember after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, Cuba offered its help uh, to help those who have been um, affected by the hurricane. In the U.S., you know, pushed them away. In a lot of these conditions for receiving vaccines. Uh, from the United States is, well, you have to denounce Cuba, right? So like how they're pitting, trying to pit um, peoples in the global South, black and brown folks against each other. And again, also starving the world from access to the vaccine that Cuba has developed. I'm sure that Cuba would have, you know, released this into the world in very different ways than the Pfizer has been uh released, you know, not for profit, but really for the benefit of the of the poorest among us. And I'm sure that won't be possible under the blockade. I mean, I think I'm sure people will be fearful of accepting any help from Cuba in fear of retaliation from the United States or even individually we've seen that the us can condition its migration policy on which vaccine you get you know if you get the china vaccine if you get the cuba vaccine okay you can't enter you know we don't recognize those as scientific even though as, as justin mentioned those are some of the most uh, you know efficient effective uh, vaccines available in the world and have been developed in such a way that they can withstand the conditions in the you know Poorest corners of the world where they don't need sophisticated technology or refrigeration to be able to be implemented. So I think that's something that people need to keep in mind. Like, this isn't about Cuba. Like, this is about all of us. You know, this is about how the United States and like its capitalist interests is starving us from, you know, getting access to technologies, to peoples, to knowledge and all sorts of things that we don't even know we're missing, um, or so many of us don't know we're missing because we're told it's nothing. You know, We're told it's worthless. And so I do want to pivot here just to close. Um, You mentioned movements in the United States being a little bit underdeveloped on this and really needing to expand its analysis uh, to really understand the bigger picture. So I wonder what can folks in the United States do uh, to truly be in solidarity with Cuba?
1: Yes. um, People really need to read history. People need to study empire. People need to study capitalism. People need to study all kinds of things. And certainly, I believe that, and it's not just me, um, that the answers are in the global South, you know, that the grassroots that these movements, I mean, like what happened in Peru? You know, just like it's in in Bolivia, what it means that, you know, these indigenous women have as their reference, Bartolina Sisa. you know, just, we need to be really clear that the answers are not actually in the U.S. You know, the answers are in the global south. Just this incredible clarity and understanding of the conditions that we all face in this world and the alternatives that need to be built in the face of militarized aggression from the US, people are doing this work. And really, particularly from their homes in the US, um, people need to engage in all kinds of campaigns. So um, the Saving Lives campaign for medical resolutions, unions, city councils, um, states, uh, calling for the end of the blockade and for medical cooperation. People need to travel to Cuba. You can do so with us at the Solidarity Collective. We're really committed and have been for 20 years working with the CMLK to facilitate people-to-people exchange. That's specifically around ending the U.S. blockade, military occupation of Guantanamo and U.S. policies, and also learning from Cuba in ways that the U.S. doesn't want us to. Um, People can also participate in monthly caravans against the blockade that were begun by Cuban-Americans in Miami. Despite the white supremacist fascist right, you know, elements there, they are standing strong and calling for remittances. The U.S. Embassy opening and also calling for the end of U.S. aggression to Cuba. Um, People can participate in petitions with bunches of organizations. People just need to educate. uh, We need to educate ourselves. And um and you know, whatever is your entryway into studying about Cuba, whether it's healthcare, whether it's about the fight against gentrification, whether it's about Pan-Africanism, whatever it is, it's important that people's people find their entryway to understand why we need to be unprincipled, we need to be principled and unshaking, unwavering in defending Cuba's right to exist.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to to come to a close. Thanks so much for for y'all's time, your analysis uh, on the ground, you know it's always helpful to gain some clarity, context. I think uh, we did just that. So thanks so much for being on Solidarity Radio.
1: Thanks so much, Evan. Thanks, Gabrielle. Yes.